Well, we pride ourselves on listening to the viewers, and that's exactly what we've done. We are back, Ted and Yogi's Pactual Adventure, and the viewers called for more Molinari. So that's what they have, along with our producer, Michael Molinari. We are not preparing for a game to broadcast on the Pac-12 Networks, at least a football game. Ted and Michael have a bunch of basketball games, but we're still talking football. Fellas, holidays around the corner. Welcome back to the show. Michael, I'll start with you. The fans have asked for you. Have you felt an uptick in your awareness as you're going around from Pac-12 community to Pac-12 community in basketball season? There are some people who have mentioned the podcast, um, and it's, uh, it's shocking to me every time. I definitely have enjoyed it more than I thought, to be perfectly honest. Hopefully, I've provided some entertainment to those listening. How do you really feel? That's like the Evan Weaver answer, and then we then we want the real one. <laughs> Yogi, he hired an agent. Come on. <laughs> now he's hitting up Yogi for a big contract for this thing. Uh, Yogi, you brought it up. You're, I'm going to get right to it. I was promised that my profile on Twitter would expand with this podcast. I've gone from 63 followers to 64 followers. So everybody out there, it's at mmolinari620. So let's see what we can do before the Rose Bowl. Our producer, Peter Gerson, you're on it. Let's make this thing happen. Molinari, we're going to get you over 100 by 2020. That's the goal, okay? Ted, how you doing, man? Uh, it's great. Look, uh, the coaching world, is. this is what happens now for the schools that aren't in a great place and haven't been winning, aren't getting set for big bowl games, you know, that the coaching wheel spins. And I got to say, since the last time we talked, guys, I am, I am feeling very good. And I know there are a lot of people who don't agree with this, but I feel very good about the decision USC made. I, I just uh, I was talking with some basketball coaches about it over the last week. And when you win eight games with three quarterbacks and five running backs, and you do it in a way that is you know upholds the integrity of your university and you know your personal integrity, your football program, then I'm glad Clay Helton is back at USC. I don't know what the Los Angeles Times writers have against him. It, it, I was down there this weekend. You, you get it every day. Michael lives in Southern California. When I was down at UCLA, you pick up the, the LA Times a couple of days in a row. And my gosh, it's I don't have any idea what what the personal animus that appears to have been uh, built there is. But finally, somebody wrote a letter to the editor Saturday. And Yogi, you probably saw this, where some letter writer finally stood up and just said, look, this is about the integrity of the university, right? That's what the university is supposed to represent. And it's well-documented the challenges USC is facing in other areas right now. The last thing in the world they need would be to, it would be to impose one on themselves in football. Agree. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back that up with some actual numbers. And uh, I've been pretty loud about this one as well of just, you know, SC fans, just, just relax. And he, here's my thought. Number one, I think a lot of the writers that have, you know, writ, wrote Clay off in the summer, right? There was multiple writers at big places that said, you know, um, Clay Helton won't be the head coach in the 2020 season. And clearly they're wrong. And I feel like a lot of people, when they're wrong in this industry, they have an outlet to fume. And that's what social media is. And that's what it's become since he was brought back. But let's just be truth tellers for a second here. Since 1980, outside of the Pete Carroll era, there's been five 10-win seasons. Total. Clay has been part of three of them. Two as the full-time head coach and one as the interim head coach. Take that even further. In the previous 20 years, 1960 to 1979, there were eight 10-win seasons. So in the last 60 years, 60 years of football, there have been a total of 20 10-win seasons. Think about that. Think about that. 
13 10 plus seasons with wins and more than half of those are under coach Carroll. So what does that mean? It means number one, Pete Carroll is in the college football hall of fame for a reason. And number two, USC fans are a little bit delusional about their reality. And I get living in LA and the recruits of LA and the brand of SC and the Heisman trophies and all the stuff. I lived it. It's awesome. I totally agree. They can win every year. They can be special. They are a blue blood, but it's just not something where you just kind of roll it out and it just happens. Things have to bounce your way like health. Things have to bounce your way like other programs not being elite. And it's not an excuse. I just think that's like the state of affairs. So I'm glad they gave him another year. He's still on the hot seat. That's what the job is. So he's got to win next year. And they got a chance in a bowl game, which we'll get to in a little bit. I think it's a really talented Iowa team that's physical. And then they play Alabama to kick off the season. So I tell SC fans, if you're a real fan, just support the program. Because there's a lot of BS out there now. Like there's a reporter who went on the Dan Patrick show and said that USC talked to, and he named the candidates. He referenced Bob Stoops. He referenced Urban Meyer. And then I heard Bruce Feldman go on the Rich Eisen show and say, none of that happened. Like, Rick, I believe Bruce has like real sources. Like, I think it's an era now where you can just kind of say, well, I heard they talked to somebody. I believe in the phrase source up sometimes. And uh, I'd love people to do that when they're throwing that out there because it catches like wildfire and doesn't help the program that all these fans are ripping apart right now as signing day is fast approaching. And thank you, Yogi, because I touched on it last week. You know, some writer of some some sort who's now apparently associated with SportsIllustrated.com trying for the clickbait wrote the piece last week that said that the decision had been made. He had, what, three – I think Clay had three days to get a job or else they were going to fire him. And then he came back the next day and said, oops, I'm sorry. Now, that's what I can't stand in this profession, the oops, I'm sorry thing. Yeah. When you start messing with people's lives, right? When you when you put that out there that's affecting 30, 40, 50 people's lives, the oops, I'm sorry, just doesn't fly. Be right. And that's where this gets off the football topic onto our profession topic. And that's the way I was raised in this business. It's not be first, it's be right. And that's totally gone to me. And it's so frustrating. We've, we've come up with the phrase real sources that Yogi just referenced. So that alone tells you a lot. I think. And also, Yogi, I sit next to an SE fan for a lot of games I do. SE fans are not going to relax as much as we'd like them to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I, I, I get it. But it's just and, and they don't need to be realistic because they, they aren't. But fundamentally for me, it's just at some point you have to accept the fact of reality. You know, just because fans boycott the Coliseum or whatever people are asking to get done on social media it is not helping anybody, right? Like, just support your program. Like, that's not what a fan is, right? A fan doesn't blow with the wind. LA people do. I live in LA. I get it. When the Lakers are winning, I'm the first one to say I want to go to a game. But when you're talking about your program at SC for true fans, like, just stop. Just support the team. Like, this is a team that's loaded. They lose three real impact players in the entire starting 22 on offense and defense. Let's just see how they play. So that's that. Um Let's move on from there. And let's. Let, I want to talk about bowl games um, because there's a lot of really fun ones. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of announce them so everybody knows. And I'm curious which one you guys are most cu- most excited to, to watch. We have the Las Vegas Bowl, UW, Boise State, the Chris Peterson game. We have the Holiday Bowl, SC in Iowa. We have the Cheez-It Bowl, Washington State Air Force. I played in that one twice. Wasn't called that back in the day. Uh, Cal in Illinois, in the Red Box Bowl. Utah, Texas in the Alamo Bowl, 
ASU without Eno Benjamin against Florida State, which is interesting, of course, with Mike Norvell being the head coach in the, in the Sun Bowl. And then the Rose Bowl, Oregon versus Wisconsin. So, Ted, I'll start with you. Uh, what are one or two of the games that you're most looking forward to and why? Well, Michael's, Michael's laughing right now when you ask me that question. Is, is there more than one? <laughs> let me put it, Mr. Bowl game, Ted Robinson. Let me Take it away. It, let me put it this way. By Sunday morning at about 10.15, I had already received three emails from my alma mater on the subject of fans with overblown expectations and bordering on delusional, uh, urging me to get the tickets for the bowl game against Iowa State. Okay. I couldn't delete those emails fast enough. So um, <laughs> the, Ro- the Rose Bowl is is brilliant. And I've, I've said this before. I was blessed to call one Rose Bowl game for Stanford when I was the announcer uh, for the Cardinal. And it was an extraordinary experience. It's one of the five best sporting events I've ever been a part of. Uh, so for Oregon to get back there, Wisconsin's been there. They were there the day I called the game 20 years ago. It, that's It's just phenomenal. And the nice part about for Oregon was this is an earned spot, earned spot. For Wisconsin, they get it because Ohio State's in the playoff. The Rose Bowl, to me, is the one game that will survive forever. No matter what the playoff system, playoff structure looks like, wherever if it evolves from the current four, the Rose Bowl game will still stand. If the sugar, the cotton, the orange don't have it, the Rose Bowl does. Look, the obvious one that is, is the Boise State-Washington game, and Chris Peterson kind of made a you know, I'm sure a half-joking reference to that would not have been his first choice. And then on a national basis, the other one that everybody's intrigued by is Alabama-Michigan. I mean, that's a pretty powerful, you know, sideline matchup with Saban and Harbaugh. And I'm looking at the at my screen here while you're talking about, again, schools yogi with misplaced uh, priorities. The last national championship outright that Michigan won, 1948. Last conference championship, Michigan won 2004. It's 15 years, right, since they won the conference championship. So it isn't, you know, it is what's affecting the USC fans, fan base. It isn't just USC. It's my school. It's Michigan. Uh, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, you know, the top tier, the, the top brand name fo- college football programs. There is a set of fans in each one of them that, you know, that need to, that need to be doused with the cold water this time of year. All right, Michael. Your well, first of all, we should do a podcast on Ted's top five sporting events he's called at some other date. I'm intrigued by that list. Well, um, the Arena Bowl's pushing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the two kind of the same theme for me are the bounce back or react to critics type of how are these teams going to perform. So SC that we were talking about against Iowa, I'm intrigued to see how SC is going to respond to some of the criticism that's come their way with the coaching decision. And then how does Utah come back from uh, immense disappointment of the championship game uh, against Texas? And I think those two are worth watching because I'm really intrigued to see how the teams are going to respond. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fun for the Bulls this year because of Washington being down and SC argue being down not being one of the top two bowl games i think this is a year that can really serve this conference you know look we won't i don't know if we'll go undefeated in this in this you know in these seven games but i do think it's the best chance to 
maybe not go undefeated, but have the best record when you look at the last couple of years. Like this wouldn't be shocked if it was six and one when you look at these games. And, and I don't know which team I would pick to lose. Um, I think when you break it down, UW is going to play their best game. I think for Chris, they'll be inspired as well as to impress their new head coach. I would hope SC plays their best game based on everything we described. Wazoo, they need a good taste in their mouth, and they should put points up against Air Force. Even if they can't stop them, they they should be able to outscore them in that game. Cal, Illinois is fun because it's kind of like the Pac-12 transfer game. Um, You look at the quarterback at Illinois, Brandon Peters from Michigan, but their top receiver is Josh Torbebe and Trayvon Sidney, USC transfers, as well as Oluwole Batiku as a defensive end. So a lot of Pac-12 ties as Justin Wilcox recruited a bunch of those guys when he was at SC, or at least was aware of them. Uh, you reference Utah, Texas. Texas doesn't have a coordinator. Like, who's calling either side of the ball? And neither does Arizona State, you know, with a freshman quarterback. And Mike Norvell was the former OC at Arizona State. It was announced that he's not going to coach Memphis in their bowl game. And then, of course, Oregon. I would imagine Marcus Royal will call plays in the game for them. He should. Uh, I talked to him today. I didn't ask him that. I was just kind of congratulating him on his new job as the head coach at UNLV but th- that's just going to be a fun game and I could see it going either way uh, so to pit to, to move forward from that I-, I want your two takes on the following question should players play in their bowl games we know that Eno's not we know that um, uh, tight end from UW uh, Bryant is not we know Trey Adams is not what are your thoughts on bowl games and should either draft eligible or senior players play in their final game Ted and I disagree on this. Yes. Uh, I believe if you're you're part of a team, you've committed to the team, these are your brothers, you've spent all season with them, why would you sit the bowl game out? That's that's just my opinion. I can understand the other side, but my opinion is you're part of a team, you're healthy, you're capable of playing, you should play. So I I differ for the most part. Obviously, if you're in the CFP if you're in the Rose Bowl game, um, you know, I could probably be stretched to a New Year's Day game uh, that I would feel more strongly about a player playing everything else in the bowl season to me. It's just ESPN programming. It's a 13th game. That's all it is. It's nothing more than that. It's a money loser for most of the schools. Um, so I have no I, I have no problem with a player protecting their future. and. I, there's two two examples very quickly. Uh, Notre Dame linebacker Jalen Smith playing in the Fiesta Bowl. This is a New Year's Day game, so this is a big game. A couple of years ago, blows his knee out, cost him millions of dollars, millions of dollars in his draft pick. Thankfully, after three years of rehab, he's back. He's playing for the Dallas Cowboys, and he's doing, from what I can see, he's doing okay. But he lost millions in his draft position because of that injury, playing a game for which everybody involved, including his own head coaches, were making money, right? We're getting bonus payments, and he's getting nothing. I have a hard time with that. And then Christian McCaffrey's the other example, one of the most highly regarded players of recent vintage, and he sat out his senior year bowl game at Stanford, or his last bowl game at Stanford, before going to the pros, uh, with the with the support of David Shaw, but... His own teammates, a lot of his own teammates, a lot of former players I've talked to echoed Michael's thoughts on this. Uh, so I admit that I, w- I was in the minority in, in terms of supporting McCaffrey on that. And the last point was a, a conversation I've talked to you two guys about was right after the McCaffrey decision, I was in Chip Kelly's office. And 
uh, Chip brought the subject up somehow. I can't remember how it happened, but he brought the subject up. And eventually it arrived that Chip was adamantly opposed to a player sitting out the bowl game. He just thought it was wrong. You finish what you started. The very uh, comment you just made, Michael. And the thing I admired about Chip was at the end of the conversation, as I was leaving his office, he called me back and he said, hey, just remember, if you ever talk about this and say this, make sure you say that I hold the same standard to coaches. That coaches don't leave before their season is over, right? Which you just touched on a couple of those, Yogi. So I thought it was interesting that at least Chip was being consistent. He was going to apply the same standard to coaches as he did to players. Statistically, your drive over to your exercise therapist, your masseuse, your foot massage is far more risky than playing in a bowl game as yeah. far as a catastrophic event. So You run that one by Jalen Smith. Well, I, I know there's the exceptions are always the things that people look at, but riding in a car to the airport, way more, way more dangerous than getting on the plane, but everybody fears the plane. I think the bowl game is probably a lot safer than doing what you're doing away from your team driving right. around. That's so my... Yes, yeah, so you, you played some cheese at bowls. Where do you come down? <laughs> it was the insight.com bowl. Oh. Yeah, I'll never forget. They were against uh, Iowa State, surprisingly, Ted, for your alma mater. And, uh, and then we played against Oregon State and uh, like Dennis Erickson, and we, and, we, and we beat Oregon State. I'll never I started that game. It was one of the very few in my career that I started. But that, that being said, I've got a couple thoughts on this. And, and it was interesting. I put it out on, on social media yesterday, just knowing we would talk about it and just wanted to hear what people said. And it was resoundingly in the camp of Ted Robinson versus Michael Molinari, which we understand, right? You talk about McCaffrey. No surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you talk about the McCaffrey game, the Sun Bowl. Keller, Keller Chris also tears his knee up early in that game. That's and everybody's right. lighting up Christian, and then that play happened, and it was like everything flipped. And I, the, the biggest thing that I wouldn't want a player to do is, especially in a physical game, is to play scared or hesitant because then you're going to get hurt. And I think if we're being honest, like it's definitely in the back of players' minds, like Hunter Bryant, who's been hurt, Trey Adams, who's missed two seasons. So I, I get those. Um, and then you look at Nikhil Harry last year or Eno Benjamin this year at Arizona State. Like they're sitting out, period. They don't have prior history of injuries, uh, at least catastrophic ones. They, they don't want to play because they don't want to risk it. Where I spin it forward is the name, image, and likeness. Like what world exists where all of a sudden now I am – whatever, car dealership X. And I say, okay, Michael, I want you to, I'm going to pay you $100,000 to use your name, image, and likeness, but you have to play in a bowl game. Like what happens when that goes on? You know, because that is, it is a huge stage for some of these places, like in terms of ratings and viewership and who knows what's going to happen with that rule. If it in fact does totally come into place, right? Maybe you guys are going to have to get paid to wear a certain wristband. Maybe they're going to get paid to put something on their shoes. Like we don't know. But that to me is like I see the unintended consequences of this thing down the road a couple of years of, man, like now if you're, if you're getting paid to play in your bowl game, like is there a bonus from company X to say, hey, Ted, I want you to play in the Cheez-It Bowl or whatever bowl you play in or you don't play unless it's a New Year's Six Bowl. Like, I, I think this thing this, can get Where does it stop, Yogi? Because should everybody just not play as soon as they're out of the conference championship because now the rest of the season is meaningless? I mean, that's the problem I have with it. Well, you can always say this game doesn't matter to me. My personal, my personal future prospects are more important than the team. You can pretty much, as soon as your team loses a game, you could start saying that. Well, yeah. well that, is that what Nick Bosa did last year? Well, I, I, and you know what? 
that's his decision. I'm not I'm not criticizing individual decisions, but my opinion is if you're part of a team, you play through. And that's and Michael, what you just said, I I can't tell you how many people echoed that very thought to me about McCaffrey's thing three years ago. Oh, I, I yeah, I I'm agree. saying it was, it yeah. was all people who I mean, it's where I live. People who don't know, I live in the proximity of Stanford. I'm around Stanford people. I worked there for a long time. Former Stanford players were. It was 99% against McCaffrey's decision, not against him, against his decision. Um, and it was all rooted in that very same thought. So I'm going to take Yogi, your point, one step further. Because, again, I'm just calling this, I'm going to borrow my friend Yogi's phrase. Let's do some truth-telling, can we? Right. <laughs> so so we have bowl games that are significant outside of the playoffs, the, the big ones, the New Year's Six games. There are some significant bowl games, right? The rest of them are weed whacker bowls, okay? And they <laughs> are ESPN programming. That's what they exist for. There's one or two that don't. Uh, the game that is played in Santa Clara that I had to be involved with a little bit is on Fox, I believe. But anyway, 95% of the remainders are on ESPN. So what happens when ESPN decides, hey, you know, Benjamin, here's 10 grand. We need you to play in the game, right? Good point, yeah. I mean, ESPN's got the most vested interest. The game is not the, the game is not about selling tickets. They can't sell tickets to the games. The schools lose money. It's strictly programming for ESPN, and of course, the schools involved believe it as a recruiting tool, extra practices for the team, etc. What happens if that goes? If we get down the line and ESPN goes through some middleman and says, "Hey, you know, ten grand on the side, bro, play." Yeah, I, I think it's just a, a slippery slope that is a reality. It's why, like, one of my favorite players of the year is LaVisca Chenault because he could have, and I might argue should have, just shut it down, right? And once he had the abdominal injury, we called that game against Arizona State, when, it, or at least we think it happened, and he didn't. Like, he kept playing and kept competing. And, to, and this was a team, I get it, they had to win their last two for a bowl game. They beat Washington and then Utah. I mean, nobody thought they'd win both of those games, let alone one, and he didn't. And that, to me, was like major anomaly. But you're right, right? Because what was the whole noise in El Paso? It was, well, Christian McCaffrey's face is all over every poster of a bowl game, right? Or to your point, Ted, hey, every commercial promoting this game is about player X, you know, Benjamin this year, Hunter Bryant, Trey Adams, if you're in Las Vegas, and then they don't play. And I, I just think that I've come to accept that if you're draft eligible or a senior going to the league and you're a projected first or second round pick, you just just don't play. You know, like just don't play. And then if I'm the NCAA, the four game ratio rule should not apply to a bowl game. Like if you're at four right now, like there's players in this conference that have played four, let them all play in the bowl game. Let everybody play. So then at least it's beneficial versus programs being hamstrung, right? Like if you got a great freshman left tackle that's played four games for Washington, let him play his fifth because Dre Adams is in play. That's a good call, Yogi. I like that idea. I, I got one more thing, Yogi, on this. Oh. I would. I just want to be clear. I'm not advocating anybody who's injured in any way fight through it and play. I'm just saying if you're fully healthy, you should play. And the second thing is if your Twitter is going to be hammering how the brotherhood and I go to battle with these guys every week and all this bravado – don't then say you're not going to play in the game. It kind of looks a little weak. I won't yeah. mention any names. No, I'm with you. So here's a, just a total uh, addendum to that. With a portal, there's going to be changes to this. It's, it's currently being discussed. And we'll, we'll talk about this as the rule gets changed or gets presented in front of the coaches. You know, rules will get presented uh, here in the next couple of weeks around the title game. And then 
as the spring goes on, the spring meetings will take into the portal into account. And what's the rule? The rule is being abused. And Houston is the example, at least that everybody's talking about. Derek King, quarterback we saw play against Washington State early on this year, after four games said, hey, I'm going to shut it down. And not enter the portal per se, but I'm basically going to sit out the rest of the season so our team can get better and I'm going to come back next year. Utilizing the four-game redshirt rule, the port, like all of the elements that are, to me, muddied waters right now, the portal, the four-game rule, et cetera. So I, I th- it's going to be really interesting to see the, the new rules that come about. And same deal whether it's uh, guys shutting it down due to, due to injury, right? Because some guys can shut it down due to injury. Like here's an example, De'Aaron King. Everybody thought that he was going into his last year at Houston, but he's got another year now. So now even in recruiting, okay, where do I get that scholarship back? Somebody's got to eat it, right? They didn't account for him being on the roster next year. So I, there's just so many things that I think can be manipulated, like the transfer rule, like the four-game rule, like the not playing a bowl rule. And I think as the name, image, and likeness thing comes up and comes about, it'll be really um, – I don't know if it'll be disturbing, there'll be unintended consequences, it'll be positive, but there's a lot that the parties that be, whether it be NCAA, and I hope much, many more people are involved in that rule, that need to take it into consideration, because right now, they're, uh, it, I'm, I'm worried, I'm worried for the game, and Ted, maybe the best thing is to cut out half the bowl games, because they're, as you said, a lot of them are meaningless anyway, and it's a nice little vacation for players, and it's kind of a cool celebration, but if guys aren't going to play in it, then maybe... I don't know. I wonder what coaches would say. Do they want the 15 well, practices or not? Well, what I would what I would advocate, and again, I just I'm not a coach. I don't come at it from that viewpoint. I just just say it is a 13th game. Just make it the 13th game. Let's have a 13 week season. Mm. Uh, and that would be my the, the concept that this is too much for the players to handle um, is a joke anyway. Because teams, the top teams are playing 15 and 16 games anyway. They are playing NFL equal schedules. So let's just say it's a 13th game for everybody. I have no problem with that. Yeah. Well, think about it. The national title is January 13th, which is going to screw with a lot of teams. Just watch. It'll come out in the next couple of weeks. Who is eligible and who is not for the second semester? Because if you plan on going to the league, you better have gone to class. Because if you're not eligible, you cannot play in that title game. And I will, I will put it down. I'll put 100 bucks on it right now. Somebody is not going to be eligible oh, really? with whatever two teams. It's just going to happen. Right, guy who thought he was going to the league didn't isn't draft eligible. I don't even know the rule around it. Like, what what does Joe Burrow have to do to play in the title game? Like, does he have to be enrolled in school? I'd assume he's already done with his degree. You know, I'd assume he wasn't planning on taking courses in the spring. So then, what happens? Like, does it hit your APR? You know, like the there's just a lot to to your point. I'm sure. I'm sure the NCAA will come up with a perfectly sane and logical solution. Perfect transition. Uh, okay. Um, let's go to, uh, again, we have four downs here. and We're taking a little time. You here. have no idea how I'm biting my tongue. Right same here, Ted. Same here. Same here. <laughs> we're moving on to all-conference picks uh, in the Pac-12. This is a hot, I'm talking scorching hot topic. Uh, we're all over this conference. I listened to some conference uh, or some team-specific podcasts yesterday as I was getting ready for signing day. And team, the, the people who cover Oregon are fuming based on what happened. Now, let me just state the reality of all-conference and Coach of the Year. It's not voted on by Ted Robinson or Michael Molinari or myself or Mike Yam or anybody in the media. It is only voted on by the head coach and his office. So however each program chooses to submit their vote, that's how they vote. 
So with that being said, our conference offensive player of the year, if you haven't been watching, Zach Moss. Defensive player of the year, Evan Weaver, not a shocker. Freshman offensive player of the year is Keaton Slovis. I, I thought it could have gone to him or Jaden Daniels. Freshman defensive player went to Kayvon Thibodeau, who went crazy in the title game. Could have been him or Drake Jackson. And the coach of the year was Kyle Whittingham. Um, so that being said, what are, what are your guys' takeaways, um, if any, from this year's all-conference first and second teams, as well as honorable mentions that just came out yesterday? Well, let me – you can't bury the lead, Yogi. What are they upset about in Oregon? Well, they're upset about the lack of people, right? Like Justin Herbert, second year in a row, guys. His whole career, he's never been a first or second teamer at quarterback. Think about that for a second. Voted on by coaches. Offensive line. They pretty much won every – you might disagree with the metrics, but pretty much every week PFF and or the Pac-12 Conference – had I think seven to nine, I don't know the exact number, like offensive lineman of the week came out of the state of Oregon. They had one offensive lineman on the first team and one on the second team. Not happy with that. Look at their defense. We've talked about their defense on this podcast all season long. One player on first or second team, and it was second team, four-year starter, Troy Dye. So that's what they're pissed about, of like, hey, where is our love? We won the conference. Historically, teams that win the conference have cleaned up. In this department, to be clear, this vote happened after the title game, unlike majority of other conferences, which happened the week of the title game. Um, so that's that's where their frustration lies. So, yeah, I'd understand the, the offensive line in particular. I get that. As you said, Yogi, that's a, I mean, that, that was a strength for them this year. And I'm a little startled by the defense, especially when you see Utah, five first-teamers. Whoa, uh, that's, that's pretty intense. I mean, we know the love Utah had, and again, their numbers. I think uh, Nick Aliotti said it during your pregame show at the championship game. You know, Utah's defense was great. Oregon's was second in the conference this year, and that got lost a little bit. You know, the, the, the Justin Herbert thing goes back. I think there was a little bit of the Andrew Luck syndrome to me with Justin Herbert. The way Oregon chose to play, the way they won games this year, did not demand Herbert be Superman. And as a result, he didn't put up Superman numbers. And that's exactly what happened with Andrew Luck during his years at Stanford. And I think it cost Andrew Luck, and it's it's not what's it's not what Stanford football is there for. They're not there to win Andrew Luck a Heisman. But I think the way they chose to play games in his tenure cost Andrew one of one of the two Heismans he was in the running for. And then you look around at Anthony Gordon with the with the video game numbers that you're automatically going to get if you play 12 games in the air rate. But balance that against what David Shaw told us, right? right near the end of the year, how impressed he was after he saw Anthony Gordon firsthand. Yo, yeah, can't find it online. Did Weaver win post-game interview of the year as well? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he did. I think that, did, that okay. is voted on by the media. Yeah, that is voted on by the gotcha, media. Gotcha. And uh, well, Kyle in the SID department over there. I can understand the frustration. I mean, if, if the votes go in after the championship game, how does Mario not get coach of the year? They won the game. They didn't play all year. They didn't, they didn't meet in the regular season. They won in the championship game. I can understand why people would be very upset about that. Because you sure. play to win the game, right, Michael? That's right. I think some votes were cast a little early. That would be my guess. Well, and look, we've also, Yogi was a coach for a while, so I'm going to say this even with you, Yogi, my friend. I've seen this before where sometimes coaches or their associates have motives. <laughs> for how they vote, which is the one suspicion about how votes are cast 
It's the one uh, reason I think that the voting should be transparent. We saw it a couple of years ago in basketball when TJ McConnell in of Arizona was the best player on the best team in the conference. And somehow Joseph Young of Oregon was voted player of the year. And it was absurd. It was absurd. But again, there was no explanation other than that was the way the vote went down. I always, I, I just carry the back of my mind that there's always that thought that there are other motives involved when it's an inside vote, which is what this was. Yeah. Well, I, I want to take you inside my experience. I remember being at SC and when this happened, we, the way we did it, I don't know how other people do it, but we went into the staff room and coach Carroll was at the head of the table and we talked about every player. Like he took it seriously. It wasn't just, you know, an SID putting, uh, writing it in, you know, even earlier today, Jeff Bechtel, the SID, longtime SID at Washington said, Hey, I think he said he, he tweeted out he's been through seven or nine head coaches and not once has he ever done the vote. It was always the head coach, which was awesome because I think there's this theory that people don't take it serious. And, and to your point, Ted, maybe, uh, coaches are voting obviously on, on their own bias and maybe the recruiting comes into factor. I'm not sure, but I do know that that's how we did it when we were there. And when I looked at the votes this year, I kind of have a takeaway from every position. So I want to, I want to run down it. The quarterback thing was really compelling for me because there's no Herbert and obviously no KJ Costello, the two guys that we would have picked, I would imagine in the preseason. So it just goes to show you, like you gotta operate throughout the whole year. Second one at running back, there was no Jamar Jefferson who was injured throughout a lot of the year. No Max Borgie and Stanford has kind of been like the running back conversation of the course of the last couple of years, Bryce Love, Christian McCaffrey, or UW, right, for the lack of consistent productivity. A wide receiver, no Aesop Winston or Brandon Arcanado, right, Washington State, number one passing offense in the country. And uh, also no Amon Ross St. Brown. Amon Ross St. Brown, if people remember on signing day, he said his goal was to win three Heismans and get out. So that hasn't happened yet. But I, my point is that those guys are really talented. But this year, this conference is loaded. And Isaiah Hodgins, by the way, didn't make the first team. Uh, but he was one of the most productive players, at least touchdown-wise, in the conference. Offensive line, my biggest takeaway was that, and I, and I don't necessarily like how we do it in this conference in terms of you just vote on the best O-lineman versus by position. First team, there's not a guard. Everybody's a tackle except Nick Harris when you look at that. And even on the second team, uh, Shane Lemieux is a guard and Elijah Vera Tucker is, but you don't really go by position which I, I think would be nice to switch up. So then it's like, all right, who's the best center? Is it Nick Harris? Is it Jake Hansen? To me, uh, he's a guy that I would have voted, you know, probably on the first team. Defensively, I thought the respect that Paulson Adebo got was incredible and deserved, but he missed the last couple games. You know, defensively, Javon Holland, we talked about him all year long. He didn't make it. Had a bad game against Arizona State, but played really well. And Javelin Guidry, he's the fastest player, the second fastest player in the whole country in terms of college football players that run track. And then there was a returner. I was surprised that Mikhail Wright uh, wasn't mentioned on there. So to the point of it's voted on by the coaches, and a lot of times when you're in that room with the coaches, they know what they know. So if Javon Holland didn't play, like I bet Arizona State did not vote for Javon Holland as somebody in the secondary. He didn't play well against them, right? Or if Justin Herbert didn't have a good game against them, the coach probably isn't voting for Justin Herbert. And, and I think that is something that probably – goes into each one of those awards and, and the respective vote. So that's my take. Yeah, yeah. you know, you know I, just a couple quick ones, you'll get. The Paulson Adebo one jumps out because, again, this is not – the problem with these sorts of things, and I'm not the biggest fan of these votes either, is because you don't want to be – you're supposed to be voting for the best, and it's not negative towards people. 
But it was pretty clear Paulson and Devo, not only did he not play November, but he didn't have the season. David Shaw even talked about it, right? Didn't start the year at the level of play that he had performed in the past. So his presence on the first team was was an eye-opener. You know, I would I would say two things. One is I'm glad Evan Weaver was acknowledged within the conference, despite the fact that PFF somehow did not have him on the first team all-conference, and on their first all-conference team, which is, again, mind, that's mind-blowing. And for Justin Herbert, hey, disappointment, clearly, to not be on the first or second team of offense. But last night, Justin Herbert was given the Campbell Trophy. Wave the flag for that because it's a, it's a prestigious award. It's an award, obviously, I'm very close to, but it means a lot in terms of what college athletics in its best form still represents. And it's a, it's a, not only an excellent football player, which was adamant, it's it gets referred to as the academic Heisman. That's a simplification. It's way more than that. You have to be a good football player. And Justin Herbert, clearly that with a 4-0 student and exemplary leadership. So, you know, I don't, that's probably not a whole lot of sad to Oregon fans that may listen to this. Uh, I was thrilled last night when I saw there were two finalists. Casey Tuwell of Stanford was also in the finalist group. I was glad that a Pac-12 player won it. And so kudos to Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert could care less about the individual awards we've been talking about. If he can win the Rose Bowl and that's his legacy, I think he'll be perfectly fine with that. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, and we should pick this up and, and do a conversation around the draft because, you know, we saw it last year or no, a couple years ago, Connor Cook, you know, Michigan State quarterback, the whole talk about the draft. And Ted, you know this better than I or, or Michael because he's been around the draft for so long. But it's like you look for any hole, and they were like, well, he wasn't voted a team captain. And it became this huge thing around the draft. I wonder for Justin Herbert, and I don't think it should, but it probably will become a thing of, well, the other coaches didn't vote for him to be an all-conference player. Why should he be a first-round quarterback? What do you think? No, I, I don't, Yogi. I don't, I don't think that will be an issue. No. Uh, you know, captain, yes, because it, it's leadership, that sort of thing. That does get discussed. Look, with, with Justin Herbert and uh, I'm trying to who else, you know, even uh, Jacob Eason, I haven't heard anything yet. If he does make a decision to go out, uh, it'll be the same thing with him. The NFL skill set is there. It's going to be everything else. How do you process information? How do you read defenses? What kind of, a, you know, they'll talk to, as you know, the NFL people will talk to everybody that this young guy has been around. They will know a lot about the personal habits. It's very hard to hide anything, although... The famous story of the offensive lineman who had the picture on social media, our wonderful thing, of uh, with a with a bong attached to his face the morning of the draft, and still got drafted in the first round. He dropped a little bit, but he still was uh, Tunsil, wasn't his? I think that was the kid, right? Yeah, Laramie Tunsil. He, and he's yeah. in the league. I mean, he's still playing in the NFL. So the the ultimate answer is that to the pros, talent wins out. So the skill set that Justin Herbert has is going to win out overall. My experience, which is. I've never been in the war room, but talking, spending a lot of time around the people in the aftermath, that would never be an issue. How he relates to people, how he calls play. I mean, the NFL still huddles, right? How do you call play in a huddle when you've never huddled? I mean, that's the kind of stuff I did hear them talk about. How do you, can, can he learn to take a snap under center at some point when you've never taken a snap under center? I mean, I've seen that. That's Those are things that are, are real. Despite what Lamar Jackson is doing this year, I don't think the league is going to turn around overnight. You're still going to huddle. You're still going to have to call plays. Still going to have to take snaps under center once in a while. So those are the things that matter. This this vote, I, I don't think will matter. 
Yeah, I love that, and I, I agree. And I couldn't get on the table more for Justin Herbert. I think he's a, I think he's a uh, awesome dude, and uh, obviously gifted player. Okay, so let's let's go to our third down. Uh, obviously, this is a long pod today, but if you love football, you'll keep nerding out with Ted, Michael, and myself. Uh, third down, new coaches, lost coaches. I don't know what the year is uh, in terms of the last time there were no head coach turn, you know, head coaches being replaced in this conference, but it feels like it's been a long time since we've had a year where there hasn't been turnover as a head coach. And of course, anything can still happen, but I don't think we would project it. I don't think we would think that David Shaw is going to go to the NFL, even though he's always rumored for jobs. Uh, But we've lost coordinators and we've lost position coaches. So Marcus Arroyo, to catch everybody up, has been announced as the next head coach at UNLV, no longer the office coordinator at Oregon. Bo Baldwin is going to be named, by the time you probably listen to this podcast, the head coach at Cal Poly. He leaves Cal. Morgan Scali gets a long extension. We don't know the details of that yet, but it smells like uh, uh, head coach in waiting, which which I think it should be whenever that happens. Brian Lindgren has been coveted all over the country, let alone this conference. Defensive coordinator at Washington State, we don't know what the deal is there for next year. D.C. at Arizona, we don't know. Offensive coordinator Rob Likens, no longer at Arizona State. Um, Washington, USC, there's a lot of rumor changes. Nothing has happened there. Um, so we'll see what happens. And then of course, um, who's going to fulfill or fill some of those coordinator positions. So, so I'm curious for you guys, Ted, I'll start with you, um, regarding coaches leaving, uh, for head coaching jobs and or staying, what are your thoughts after some of the news in this conference is broken? Yeah, it's good. You'll get a couple quick, uh, quick points. We have had one, we obviously have one coaching change, but it was self-imposed with Chris Peterson choosing right. to, to step aside. Um, so no coaches being fired. That's, I think, a big plus. So it will be two years in a row now in this conference with only one coaching change. Mel Tucker was the only new coach, uh, head coach in, in 2019. So I think that's a good thing. The assistant thing, it's, it's a great deal for Marcus Arroyo. It does open up again to me the question of, for example, at, at Oregon, where Mario Cristobal has set, a, set in place a very specific way he wants to play offense, right, Yogi? And it's different from what Oregon fans got accustomed to with Chip and then Mark Helfrich. So he needs to find a coordinator, I'm assuming, that follows in his footprint. Whereas at Cal, Justin Wilcox, it's interesting because Justin's had this brilliant defense and their offense has, has, has trailed. And they need to get their offense sparked. Um, and they, you know, I'm sure you feel this way, Michael feels this way, Chase Garbers has shown enough, you know, you, you can ride forward with him but they need an upgrade of the receiver position and the philosophy that they're going to bring in. Does Justin Wilcox go get an air raid guy like Clay Helton did? I, I don't have any idea. I'm just interested in that regard to see, because that to me is the open question. There is no offensive philosophy right now at Cal like there is at Oregon. I think Cal needs a little creativity. When uh, Yogi and I were watching some film, you saw a lot of the same plays, a lot of the same formations and, I think that's that's what they're probably looking for. But I would suggest that Morgan Scally gets up to Seattle at some point and has a, a talk with Mike Hopkins about the coaching waiting thing. Um, Mike Hopkins was waiting a long time at Syracuse for Jim Beheim, and he, he'd still be waiting if he hadn't left. So just uh, a cautionary tale. Well, it's the, Jimmy, it's the Jimmy Lake thing, right? I mean, I think that's you hit that, Yogi. That's, that feels like it's the Jimmy Lake deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. I think I'm glad that Morgan stayed. Um, You know, Coach Whittingham 
I don't think he's going to be there till he's like Joe Paterno or you know Bobby Bowden. I don't, I don't see him like that. Um, it'd be interesting to see how many more years he decides to stay there. But some guys just feel like such a great fit. Um, and what'll happen now? And I and I love the Jimmy Lake. We talked about it last week. Got hired there. I, I love when athletic directors see a culture and see somebody trained in that culture and say, okay, yeah, he's got the persona and the skill set and the juice to remain as head coach versus hiring a search firm and getting somebody who's already done it that maybe has not had the type of success or maybe would come in and completely have sweeping changes. So I'm glad that he stayed. I had a chance to talk talk to Marcus Royal earlier today, and he's so excited for the opportunity. I think it's a very it's a very unique opportunity in terms of going to a conference in the Mountain West that has a new stadium and a brand new facility. Their facility is better than some teams in the Pac-12, the new one that they built there in Vegas. And he's got a total ideology for how he wants to run the program. To me, he's part of that, like Nick Rolovich, um, Brent Brennan. Like, those guys are all best friends. You know, you go back in time, since they were in their early 20s, those guys every summer, and I've been trying to get invited to it, they'll go to an undisclosed location and just bring their families, do vacation, but also every morning do football. And there's a group of about five to seven guys all around the same age. And they just come and share insights all off season for, you know, three or four day long weekend. And I love seeing that next generation of coaches get jobs. So I'm pumped for him. And then for Cal, I think that they're a school that I don't think they, I don't think they're an air raid school. Uh, I know they tried it and had success moving the ball with Jared Goff and Sonny Dykes in that era, but they can recruit. They're one of the few schools that can recruit tight ends. I'm doing signing day. And Cal is the team I'm, I'm evaluating today. And they can run pro-style stuff. And I think pro-style does not mean two backs, eye formation anymore. You're still in the gun. You're still using some zone read, RPO stuff. But you got to be able to run the football. you know. And, and they can recruit that type of kid. And I is think that what you think Dustin wants to run? Yoke? Yeah, I do. I think he, he wants to have a real creative element. And the biggest thing for whoever gets this job now, they got to be able to walk into the top quarterback in California's house and say, this is a big time education. And oh, by the way, in the last, whatever, 15 odd years, it's been Aaron Rodgers and Jared Goff, like big time quarterbacks come out of here because they don't have one. Like they should have got Tyler Shuck, in my opinion. He would have been playing by now. He was in Phoenix. He loved that campus, loved that school, couldn't close the deal. So I look for them to get a personality. Wouldn't be shocked if it came from the NFL. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I think that Justin will take his time. He's extremely thorough, but they're going to have to get somebody that walks into a room and says, look at what I've done in terms of developing in this position because they haven't recruited well at that spot. You know, they haven't been in the conversation like CJ Stroud this year. He's one of the top three quarterbacks in the West coast. He loved Cal. And then he blew up, was named MVP at the elite 11 and they, they hadn't been able to close the deal. So I think that's going to be a huge part of it is getting somebody who walked into the room and has respectable juice. Um, and I think there's a ton of names out there. I think I don't like always speculating about names, uh, but the people that are interested in this is a laundry list of who's who. And I think now Justin, after this early signing period, will be able to take his time and say, okay, this is the right fit. And they're going to be able to pay too. It's not like it's, you know, a, a job that can't take care of you and can't attract one of the bigger names in, in the country. So I, I think they'll hit a home run when okay. they net it out. And will it be that? I guess that's the question. Will he, will Justin hire a philosophy or will he hire a person? I think he's going to have the ability to do both, you know, like, because look, he'll set the offensive philosophy where he wants diversity. He wants creativity. As 
one of the best defensive minds in the game. He knows what beats him, right? And he's very clear on on that. And he's he he has the the acumen to say this is what will win in this conference. This is what's really hard to defend. But I think they need somebody, in my opinion, that can walk into the offensive team meeting room or walk into the living room of Recruit X and say, hey, man, you can come here and play for a long time. And, and you know, you're not going to come in and have to sit for three years. Because even now, Chase Garbers is talented, and they went undefeated when he completed the game. And he should be their guy next year. But he's also, you know, coming into the back half of his career, which sounds crazy because it's gone by that flat fast. But they need to be able to go get one of the top five signal callers on the West Coast and hang on to it and close the deal. And they haven't been able to do that. You go back a couple years, guys, the starting quarterback at Nebraska was committed to Cal. He had no offers. Cal was on him as a junior, and nobody was. And then Tennessee came. He committed there. And then Scott Frost came. He flipped and went there. they got to be able to walk in and say, this is Cal. You want to really be coached by us. And for whatever reason, they haven't been able to do that in that position room. And that, to me, is something that they have to fill. And the names that are out there, they're, they're really impressive that I think are interested in the job and that Justin would have mutual interest in. Hey, two, two quick things on that point. And one of the first one is going to tie back to uh, something that we started the year with, uh, because you mentioned Cal needing to be able to go out and sell offense. They did it. The guy who did it was Jeff Tedford. And Jeff Tedford just announced his resignation. And I'm going to assume it's retirement because he admitted it's related to health issues and heart concerns um, at Fresno State. It's sad because Jeff did a brilliant job at Cal, again, resurrecting a program that was at the bottom when he got there. He sold offense, as we know well. And it's unfortunate because it goes back to the transfer question we had earlier in that Jake Hayner leaves Washington early in the year and jumps right to Fresno State. And now you you know who's coach going to be. So, boy, you, know, you talk about potholes with that kind of quick decision that people can make when they're frustrated. They make it out of emotion, not out of rational thought. And now that comes back. So when I saw the Jeff Tedford announcement and read that it was the health-related thing, obviously you're concerned about Jeff, but that's the next thing I thought of was was that Jake Hayner decision. And there's, again, a, a pothole about the transfer portal. The second point on the assistant coaches, you mentioned a few. And, boy, Mike Molinari said it earlier. Mike Hopkins, to me, is the, is the shining example of when you feel like you can't stay in one place too long. You can't wait forever. You need to be a head coach. Man, you go someplace where you think you can win. And Mike Hopkins did that. And that's so hard for football, boy. I hope Marcus Arroyo can do it because I learned this in other sports too. It's it's a common wisdom that's passed down from veteran successful coaches to assistant coaches on the way up. Your first job's vital. That creates your cred. And so you need, you know, there's no guarantees of life, but you need to go someplace where you really think you can win. And I know that's much easier said than done, total acknowledgement. But I think it's something that at this time of year, I think about that a lot when I hear of these decisions that coaches make to take jobs. Yeah, Michael, I want to ask you a question about that because I think there's something real about burnout in this profession. Right? Chris Peterson cited it, Jeff Tedford and his health had just referenced. I feel as though the young coaches like Marcus Arroyo, um, I don't want to say they're burnout, but it's almost like, Hey, I got to take my opportunity when it's there because this is a grind. And I don't know if I want to do it till I'm Bobby Bowden, 80 years old or whatever it is. Uh, I wonder what your take is because you sit in these meetings with all these, you know, hot up and coming coordinators around burnout and when guys take jobs, why they take jobs. 
Well, actually, go to some personal experience. My brother is an assistant coach at Youngstown State in college basketball, and he's been in in the game, I think, coming up on 30 years. And what he told me is with, with the portal, with recruiting, with social media, the last four or five years has been more wearing on him than the first 25. So take that for what it's worth. But I think the job of college coach with all those factors that have come in the last five or six years has made it incredibly susceptible to burnout. And it's just, you're always on. You might get a week off, but you're not really off because you're monitoring your emails, your social media, everything else. So I just think it's really exponentially become harder for coaches over the last half decade. And I think we're seeing the residue of that with what's been going on with Chris Peterson, et cetera. Yeah, I'm with you there. Okay, uh, I want to get to the humanity moment in one second. Ted, I just want your thoughts on one more thing before we uh, transition to Michael here. Or right now, as of today when we recorded this, here's the following early NFL entries. Eno Benjamin, LaVisca Chenault, Isaiah Hodgins, Hunter Bryant. I think we probably assumed those. And then Katie Nixon and J.J. Taylor, receiver at Colorado, running back from Arizona. What are your thoughts overall on on guys leaving early when they're not, I, I wouldn't imagine JJ Taylor and Katie Nixon are first or second day projected draft picks. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but what, what are your thoughts on guys leaving and, and this year's list as it stands today? It's, it's tough yoga and Michael and I am not trying to dodge this, but it's hard because as you, at some point you sound like the, uh, the grand Torino guy preaching, you know, come on kids, stay there, blah, blah, blah. I've, I've long in football. I've long held, a feeling that I would never challenge a running back to go because a running back of any position in this sport has the shortest shelf life. There's only so many carries. And if someone wants to get paid for those carries, I have no problem. Now, the reality, again, of a J.J. Taylor, his size, it's obvious that he has to hope that he goes someplace where the game is changing, where the pro game is changing to more of a spread and that someone of his size has a chance to thrive. He's not going to go to play for a ground and pound team. It's hard for me to hold it against running backs. I don't know why KD Nixon decided I was in Boulder yesterday and I, I didn't really see anybody football related to ask the question. I, I hope the very thing that we confronted with a, a basketball player last week at BYU who tested the waters for the NBA draft last year, chose to come back to BYU, but got caught up in some problem. And I don't even know. We never get the true story, but the NCA suspended for nine games. And in theory, I have a problem with that because kids just trying to do the right thing, right? He's trying to get some wise advice, trying to get the NBA to tell him, dude, you should go back to school, right? Because there's only 60 guys that get drafted in the NBA draft, period. That's it. Everybody else is, is on their own. I would, I would hope that these young men in, the, in college football do that. And, and I'm going to, be a truth teller here as well. The other issue you touched on earlier, Yoke, about eligibility. I think at some point, some people, school's not for them. That may factor into the decision too. They may be ahead of the gun saying, all right, this isn't going to work for me academically. I'm just going to go. Yeah, well, I think that's, it's so interesting because I think back to when I was playing. Like, number one, every player that's a scholarship player or beyond thinks they're going to the NFL, uh, which is awesome. Uh, the, the other part that's not awesome is that's not real. And it's hard to accept that. And I look at Katie Nixon, and we spent a bunch of time with him calling Colorado games. I mean, he was hanging out with Michael and I and Scott playing catch on the sideline before a game earlier this year. 
And this is a guy who comes from a rough background and he's never hid from it. He knows that it's who makes him uh, or it's part of what makes him and what drives him. And he says like that the league has been his dream forever. And the guy he grew up with, LaVisca Chenault, is going to be a first round pick, in my opinion, as long as he's healthy. And he chose to leave with him. And I'm kind of torn because I'm so excited for him because on one hand, this guy could could not be where he is at all. Right. He could not even be in college, but he's thriving. He goes to class. He, you know, he came on this podcast or he came on a, a podcast in the summer talking about his future and how he wants to be a producer or how he wants to be involved in storytelling. He's got a vision for his life and he wants to take a run at it. So part of me is so pumped for him. The other part of me is like, ah, stick around another year and just keep adding to the, I call it like social equity that, that you're building, social currency that you're building because. He's adored by our network, for instance. TV cameras love him. As you know, Ted, it's not really going to be that way in the league. He's going to be fighting for that fifth receiver spot or whatever it is. And and I got no doubt that he can earn and compete his way in to making a team. But it's just going to be different in terms of his narrative. So I I get torn on that because I want to see him stay and keep growing. And then I get why he leaves and it's his dream. And he's going to support us. He's going to be able to at least have the opportunity to support his family. I just hope that it works out for him versus, you know, gets cut and, and... you know, is, is watching games next year instead of playing it. And, you know, so last last point I'll just make on this. So I was uh, at a Stanford practice earlier this year talking with some of the people there. And here's a young man that I don't know if he's made his decision yet, but he clearly will have one to make, and it's Colby Parkinson, the tight end, right? And, and people who know him well are saying, you know, hey, look, he's been around some guys at Stanford before him that left. He said the difference with Colby Parkinson is he likes school. He likes being at Stanford. He enjoys everything about the experiences, you know, not just the football. So there was a lot of hope from this conversation that he was going to come back to play another year at Stanford. Now, that's his call to make. But I'm saying that factors into these thought processes. Again, a lot, I think, for these kids. Do they just do they like being there? Do they like being at school or is school just the gateway to the dream, as you talked about, so many of them have. The dream is to be in the league. Um, you know, the greatest example we ever saw of that, I think we'll ever see in our lifetime, was Andrew Luck. I mean, he would have been the number one player picking the draft the year before and went back to Stanford to play one more year. He legitimately liked Stanford. He loved it. And so that's, there. I, I would guess, the, the players that fit into that category are far fewer than those who have the dream. But I think it's something to consider when you see these kids go through this process and make this decision. Yeah, well said, well said. Okay, well, the most well said portion of this podcast. Here we go, Michael. What do you got? Humanity moment of the week. First of all, I just, on KD, if his confidence can translate, he'll be just fine. Because he was electric confidence. We got to talk to him before practice that day. I'll, I'll never forget it. One of the most confident people I've ever met. So I wish, I wish the best for him. So my humanity moment First weekend off, of course, I just sat on the couch and decorated the tree. I took a gig, NBA, I produced an NBA game in Boston on Friday, which was also my birthday. More on that in a minute. So Thursday, when I got there, I had the opportunity, my sister lived in Boston, so I got an opportunity to go out to dinner with her at a wonderful place in the North End, which is the Boston Italian section. Great restaurant, Pomodoro. Have the salmon if you're ever there, highly recommend it. So the big news from my sister was that she had a new boyfriend, Jesus. Uh, I said, oh, what does he do? Well, he's a chef from Colombia. And I said, what does he cook? Well, it's kind of like Greek food, but call it Eastern Mediterranean. He's really 
uh, picky about that. So anyway, Eastern Mediterranean, kind of like Greek, but don't call it Greek. So anyway, this was Thursday night. We have the game on Friday. It's a nice late start. Teddy would have loved the 8 o'clock tip, 8.15 tip, actually. So uh, it was uh, finishing about 10.30, 11 o'clock. And I called my sister and said, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to make it out. I was hanging out with the announcers, having a drink, as you know, we producers have to do. She said, I don't know, they're keeping the place open for you. Jesus and his friends. So I said, all right, I'll come out. So I get there about midnight and I meet him and he's a wonderful guy. And I look forward to, I think there's a budding relationship there and I'm really excited for them. And, uh, you know, my sister and I hung out for a minute and she said, Michael, I have one problem with Jesus. And I said, what's that? He says, well, when he texts me, and sometimes he texts me kind of things that, you know, some romantic things, but it says Jesus, because Jesus is spelled Jesus. So I said, oh, that could be a little awkward. Well, she said, well, I took care of it. I changed his name in my phone to Chef. And I said, does, does he know that? And she's like, no, I'm not going to tell him just yet, but it, it made me feel better about it. So I thought that was kind of funny. So I had, on my birthday, starting my 50th trip around the sun. I got to meet Jesus. I lived to tell about it. And he bought me two shots of tequila. So I'd call that a win. Oh, wow. And can I say for chef, an homage to Isaac Hayes? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's all I could think, Ted. <laughs> the voice of chef. And by the way, Yogi, my humanity moment for this week, I'm sitting here. You guys know Pod Save America, right? You know what that is. Mm -hmm. Pod Save America is this uh, podcast that's been it's one of the first podcasts that blew up. And it's a bunch of uh, political guys who worked in the Obama administration. So you understand where they're going with their subject. But their title on their on their iTunes account every week is they take a phrase out of the show, maybe an hour and 20 minutes of talk. They take one phrase that resonates and that's the, the title they try to grab you with. I have the all time title for our first year of this podcast. Yogi and me watching film. I'm still recovering from that one. <laughs> Yogi, get Peter Michael, to black Michael, this out, Boston, Michael please, this week. That's that's what Michael I need. Moore would do a great doc on this, don't you think, Yogi? Yogi and <laughs> me watching film. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, you guys, I miss you guys. I miss you guys. I think my my humanity moment of the week is I was at home on a Tuesday for the first time since. Uh, July, and I got to drop Zane off at school, pick him up at school, and our conversations on those drives are, no offense, but probably a little bit better than these podcast conversations because we go everywhere, and that has been a freaking blast. They better be, and they're yeah. priceless and precious. Amen. It's the best part of this football season has been watching you, Yogi, watching your new life evolve. Thanks, brother. All right. Well, the best part of this podcast is that, uh, well, this episode, while it ends, the rest of them won't. We're going to keep this thing rolling, at least through the Rose Bowl. Let us know what you want. I mean, I keep getting asked about it. I got asked by Bill Riley in Salt Lake City yesterday. He said, hey, where's the episode this week? I was like, oh, it's coming. <laughs> Don't worry. We have to wait till the awards came out. So uh, we'll marinate. Hit us up if you want on all social media. Please, Michael, on Twitter. Let's get him to 100 by the time yeah. we get to 2020. Uh, and with that being said, fellas, appreciate the time. Peter, appreciate the edit because for our producer, this is clearly our longest podcast, but it's full of rich content. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share. And we'll be back next week. It's signing day, another early one for the 2020 class.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.